names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. Fight. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 46, Monopoly on Violence. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are out in Bahama, North Carolina, um, out in the country. What, what's this uh, thing they're telling us to do? Isolate. We're sheltering in place. Yeah, we're sheltering in place. We're keeping and, uh, a social distance. Of social it. distancing. That, that's what we're doing. Now that there's a name for it, that's what we're doing. <laughs> and um, basically, we, we have our van parked out in the country in a place that we can chill out, like uh, um, right outside of my mom's yard on the edge of a field and... You know, we're going down to a stream to bathe and everything and using the campfire. And, yeah, so far, it's pretty nice. Uh, not so different than um, what we usually do, except maybe a little more of this, you know, <laughs> minimal runs into town. Yeah, we're um, we're not really keen right now on going to hotels and getting coffee. <laughs> Didn't see the uh, pandemic happening in van life. That's the first for us. So, anything else you want to add? Is this the first day of spring? Yeah, I think it is officially, but, I mean, if you're out in the woods all day, you know spring has already sprung. Yeah, we've seen a lot of spring ephemerals already for a long time. So we want to talk about violence. This is kind of a continuation <laughs> of a lot of stuff that we got, uh, that we brought up in the Unibomb podcast last season. Um, so, Teresa, you want to kick us off? Okay. So we're going to talk about how violence is framed in our culture versus other cultures. Because you might think that, you know, you're not fighting directly, you're not being violent in particular to anyone, but if you're a member of this culture, which is pretty much all of the earth now, the taker culture, we are at the very least supporting the violence for the way of life that we lead versus a lever culture, which is basically like taking only what you need and having respect and reverence for all living beings and everything is alive. What do you think, Gumby? Um, well, you know, I think about the contrast, like in lever cultures, you know, and I'm using Quinn's term, Daniel Quinn from his books, um, basically cultures outside of our culture, you know, what you might call indigenous cultures, for instance, um, violence has its place. You know, we often see like kind of a pattern of, even women and children fighting, you know, when their their community is under attack. They fight for the health of their land because they recognize that's a part of them. Um, so definitely you don't see strict pacifists. That, that seems to be sort of an unnatural human situation. Um, and it's so much different than what we see in our culture where the average citizen, violence is just hugely frowned upon. You know, it's against the law. You get in trouble for that. Um, it's, it's just considered a very vulgar um, thing. And our culture teaches that certain people have a monopoly on violence. They get to use violence and they use violence in the most extreme ways. Um, so that's a contrast I see, you know, like 
to, to kick off this conversation on violence, just to consider that. Oh, and something else, um, we'll talk about this uh, um, podcast that we listened to that had someone with some really good insights, but um, thinking about like how that type of violence, how uh, police or military is normalized in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're definitely not a nonviolent culture, but we believe that violence should be in the hands of a certain chosen few, and the rest of us um, should not use violence. You know, if there's a violent situation, then ideally you call one of these people who can use violence to come and apply it in what is considered by our culture appropriate ways. Um, there's this podcast that we listen to, and I, I really recommend it. It's called The Green Flame. And the very first episode, Revolutionary Community, was a really good episode. And one of my favorite parts of this episode is there's this woman from our culture, and um, I can't remember her name, but she's the bulk of the, the this episode is her interview. And she's talking about things that have affected her and her views. And um, right at the end of this podcast, she makes she talks about this 90-year-old wise man that she calls Baba. And did you catch or do you remember where this was? Um, well, she was talking a, a f- about a few stories. It seemed like it might be um, in the like Middle East, but more towards like Russia, like may- maybe one of those Stan countries like Kazakhstan or something like that. But I, I don't remember exactly where. Yeah, and this 90 year 90-year-old man, Baba, he was uh, something like a shaman in this uh, community, you know, a wise man. And there's a lot of interesting things that she shares that he says, like, you know, he's got this old Vogue magazine he somehow acquired from a former visitor. (laughs) And he says, I don't need to read the words. I can look at the pictures to understand that your culture is insane. (laughs) You know, and just... uh, You know, she said she learned so much from the contrast of what this man would say. He would ask her questions rather than tell her things, you know, like she would find it remarkable that they didn't have police in this community. And he'd say what you should find remarkable is that you have these uh, activities happen so routinely in your culture, um, violence towards children, for instance, that you feel like you need police. That's what I find remarkable. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the end of this podcast, as I was saying They talk about violence specifically, and she talks about her background, you know, being like a liberal leftist kind of person, and she sees herself as a pacifist. And so when people in this community talk about, you know, they might have to use violence, they might have to fight an enemy group, she's kind of put off by it. And she wonders how this guy that she has such a high regard for um, can support and engage in this violence. And when she shares this with him, And she says, well, you know, I'd be afraid, like, I would become them. He laughs. And he says, well, you know, we understand that there is a season for everything, that there is a time for peace, there's a time for love, there's a time for laughter, for mourning, um, for everything there is a season, turn, 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 and all that. (laughs) But he says there's a time for violence. There's a time to fight for what you love. You know, that is... A very appropriate thing. And if you don't fight for what you love, then you're a slave, basically. You know, there's a time to stand up and fight. But after that time passes, you put the weapons down. Then there's a time for peace again. And she said that really changed her view. Um, It was a profound moment for her because she saw that the way we're kind of taught violence in our culture 
is such a different thing. You know, we have people that are violent all the time. We have standing right. armies. Exactly. You know, constant violence. It's it's a matter of course. We can't live the way we do without violence. We are violent dependent. Whereas this other culture, and within this culture, you know, we have so many people that are pacifists. I actually, to get ready for this podcast, I wanted to see if I could find any good quotes on violence. So I put violence quotes. I Googled that. Bunch of things came up all about nonviolence. Hmm. I was like, well, crap. So I put pro-violence quotes. The same crap came up. It was really hard to find anything from our culture on the internet that was pro-violence. I had to do some digging, you know, whereas to find nonviolent sentiments, they're everywhere. Fucking Google. And how strange is that in one <laughs> in the most violent culture that's ever existed on the face of the planet? Um so, yeah, is there anything that you wanted to share about that episode? And by the way, like I said, I really recommend it. The Green Flame Revolutionary Community, Episode 1. Uh, listen to this yourself. It's a great interview. Well, I was going to share um, a little bit later kind of what you already shared, but just in a different context. So we can move on. Okay. To protest, because we hear a lot about, you know, maybe a nonviolent protest or trying to have ways that we can potentially have an outlet. And our Unibomb episode, um, talking about Ted Kaczynski, he has an essay, one in particular, um, well, in addition to his industrial society and its future um, thesis, he talks about leftists and how they tend to co-opt movements. And what he describes is you know, people are fighting, they're fighting for something that they're really passionate about, and leftists come in and they're like, yeah, we want to join that. And also, what about equality? And it just kind of derails everything. Or what about, you know, whatever the hell, I don't know, green energy. And you're like, but it's diluting the fight. So how do you handle this leftist basically co-opting of your movement. Yeah, it waters down a revolution and turns it into a reform movement. And when you look at the effects of this reform, like for instance, equality sounds really good at face value. You know, we've been taught to revere this word, especially by liberal leftist standards. But what we mean is e equal opportunity to participate in this culture, to, <laughs> to benefit from it and to help it function. Um, so often these leftist ideas are, are dangerous because they seem very nonviolent, but what they amount to is helping this culture continue, feeding this culture, um, actually even improving this culture, but not changing this culture from its violence. As Daniel, as uh, Derek Jensen points out, he defines civilization, and I really like this definition, as a way of life dependent on large groups of people you would call a city. Now, what is a city? A city is a group of people that has become so big that it needs resources outside of the carrying capacity of the land it's on. Mm -hmm. And since those resources are already being used, often by other people, lever cultures, as Daniel Quinn might say, or by at least your uh, non-human neighbors, it requires violence. It is dependent on violence. So as long as we're living this way, um, industrial society and uh, civilization, it's violence dependent. So when you have leftists and liberals that step in and, um, you know, they have these ideas of like, let's just distribute the goods, the spoils 
of this way of life more equally, better. It doesn't address the most poisonous parts of how we're living, the parts that actually are not working. And it also, in addition to what we've talked about, it also divides us. It keeps us fighting against each other versus fighting the bigger monster of civilization. Mm-hmm. And what we call environmentalism, you know, from this standpoint is a joke. It's how to keep doing what we're doing to live this violent way we're living um, in a more sustainable way. Mm-hmm. If you're a true environmentalist, if you actually want to, to help return to a world where we can live sustainably and at peace with all the members of this planet, um, civilization's got to go. There's, you're not trying to find ways to make it more sustainable so civilization can continue. That would be the last thing you want. Civilization has to end. And keep in mind this definition I just shared about civilization. And since civilization is not going to voluntarily, there's no signs. I, I mean, I can't imagine anybody saying like, oh, we're just going to choose to like all give this up and sit around campfires and, you know, go back to that way of life. There's going to have to be a fight. Um, it's going to have to be God, I hated to, I don't want to say impose, but there's going to have to be some force involved. And this is something lever people understand, you know. Maybe you just kind of twitched a little bit at that idea of like, oh, force. But that's because you're being brainwashed in this culture. Any lever person recognizes, yeah, there's a time to fight. You know, if somebody's threatening your community, your land, your family, you stand up and you fight viciously. You do whatever it takes to stop them. Um... And I think this urge to fight is a very natural urge. One of the tactics I see in our culture um, when we when we look at violence and, and violence's place in our culture is it is so often redirected. Um, look at voting. You know, you might feel like, wow, the powers that be, I've seen the Democratic Party, they fucking rape and pillaged the land. They destroyed the environment. I'm really pissed off, but I'll try this voting thing. All right, let's get other leadership. Well, hell, here's the Republicans. They did the same fucking thing. So let's try another Democrat. After 45 times of doing that, you know, you might feel pretty violent. It's time to stop them because they're obviously not going to stop themselves. But voting makes you feel complicit. It's a tactic. It's a way to rechannel that violence. Oh, well, don't rise up. I mean, you actually had a say in this. You voted, right? Well, here's the process. You had a say in this. If there was enough people that agreed with you that leader would be in power. Um, Social media, my God, here's one that I get sucked into a lot. Facebook, you know, how many white hot memes we, as, as people say, do you see on, on Facebook? You know, it's, it's redirecting that energy. If you didn't feel like you could say something really controversial and, uh, really strong worded on Facebook and people would see it and, ooh, I bet they just blew their mind. (laughs) You might actually have that energy build up in you and it might compel you to take action, to actually do something rather than just sit and complain and write on Facebook and, whoo, I feel so much better. I let that go. And then you just go back right into the rat race, Um, redirecting the violence. Aggressive sports, you know, whether you play them, which, of course, is a great way to, like, get that competitive urge, that that violent tendency that we have in us, or vicariously, you know, whether you just watch it. And has anybody noticed how much politics is kind of carrying the same energy as, uh, like, sports? You know, you root for your team, you get really aggressive, you get really mad, you say really, like, heated things, and uh, it's just redirecting. It's, It's just, 
watering down this energy that otherwise might be used to actually revolt, to fight the powers that be. And of course, this technology, you know, this growing technology, this constant distraction. If you're feeling bad, well, shit, go watch a comedy, a sitcom. Maybe you'll laugh and feel better. Um, just constant distraction. in the video games, oh my God, look how violent they are. So you just went and shot a bunch of fucking zombies on your video game. And, uh, you know, now you're not going out and, like, defending your land, defending the land base, defending your neighbors, uh, fighting for your future. And the dependence on this technology. Who's going to rise up when they feel like if the government fell, they'd be absolutely fucked? They don't know how to build their own houses. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to do anything. Including me. Yeah, well... We're trying. I mean, it's a process. You know, we're all trying to, uh, I'd say Teresa and I are trying to, to learn more of these skills. But yeah, I mean, we're not totally free of it. And this is a fast changing thing. If you just go back 100 years, this is a lot less true. Mm-hmm. People knew a lot of these skills. They are quickly being taken away from us. And so our um, the chances of us fighting in any serious way become less and less because we all know no matter how mad we get, no matter what we say. And by the way, I see this in Daniel Quinn. I see this in Derek Jensen, some of the most profound thinkers that have inspired me to fight, to resist. They didn't actually seem to fight and resist much. Um, What were they going to do? They're as dependent as the rest of us. I see Derek Jensen writing Endgame, you know, and he's like, I wake up every morning And I wonder whether I should write a book or blow up a dam because I don't know if we need another book. I've yet to, like, see that fucking dam blow up, you know? (laughs) And I understand it, too. But what pisses me off is he's encouraging everybody else. Stop this. Rise up. Stop this. And then, like, he's like, anybody got an electric blanket I can have? You know, I know you're going to say I should sleep in some pine boughs and everything, but, um, I mean, it's just... (laughs) It's so theoretical. And the same thing with Daniel Quinn. You know, he's like, abandonment. You know, leave this culture. Abandon it. I don't think he did. Do you? No, definitely not. So there's this dependence. And, you know, I'm not just picking on these two guys. I just singled them out because they're such strong voices in the resistance. Same's true with us. Same's true with all of us. We're yeah. dependent. And this is a new thing. This is a, a commercial tactic for people to profit from us. And also a political tactic, because we're not going to revolt if we're dependent. And psychological, yeah. And then, of course, the indoctrination. You mentioned violence. You just, you know, pick um, a group of people, unless you've got like a strong anarchist group of people, and mention violence. Um, And see how many people like really think you're fucked up. You know, if you just even put it on the table, like maybe we should fight. I mean, like really down and dirty fight, you know, like the way the U.S. Army does every day, like fight for something better. Um, But we're indoctrinated through religion, through education. You know, you pay attention to what we all get taught in school. It's very much that if you want to fight, fight for your country. That's the only good way to fight. Um, Don't fight for something you personally believe in unless it just happens to align with the your country, and then sign up for the army. TV, oh my God, TV show after TV show. If anybody does fight, oh, the regretful situation. They regret it. Things, Bad things happen. They went crazy. Um, they get reeled back in. This indoctrination is prevalent. It's everywhere. That just reminded me of a time when I was younger, and I asked my mom, like, something about 
like of course there was fighting in the Middle East, like in Israel and everything. And I was like, God, could you imagine living in a place where there could be bombs dropped at any moment, any time of the day or night, anywhere in your town or city? I mean, they could be dropped or blown up when you're in the marketplace, when you're going to the grocery store. And she's like, well, that's why we live in the United States and we live, you know, in the way that we do because we don't want that. (laughs) And it's just, I mean, my mom's crazy, but it's just perpetuating that like, oh, well, I don't want to be violent because then if I'm violent, then somebody else is going to be violent. Then we're going to have things blowing up in the grocery store or in the marketplace or in the square or whatever. And um, you looked like you were going to say something. Well, I'm just thinking how we visit violence all over the world to maintain this way we live. And then when somebody actually breaks through our our security and we have violence in this culture from somebody from another part of the world, how horrified we are and how people act like, what did we do? Yeah, exactly. I'm just sitting here drinking my coffee. My God, all these innocent people just got killed. I don't pay taxes to have this happen in my country. (laughs) So the violence. I thought we were killing all those people out there. (laughs) The violence is there. You know, it's just, to me, when we talk about violence, we're talking about redirecting it. Um, The violence is being used by the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And the evidence is all around us. If you look at what's, what's losing out there and what's winning, all the wrong, all the wrong people. And when I say people, um, depending on how I use the word, I also mean non-human people, but all the wrong people are losing and all the wrong people are winning. And, we're already immersed in this. And if you think about, like, does violence work? Of course it does. Of course, we know the obvious going over and, you know, blowing up and shooting people. Yeah, and I've actually been in this conversation where somebody tells me, violence just doesn't work. And I'm like, have you looked around? How do you, the fuck do you think we got to be in this situation? It's the people that use the most violence that took over the globe. It yeah. worked. We have spread our culture far and wide. And it also, you know, it's, it's a fear tactic, even if you feel like you're not in a violent situation, but you don't want to become violent because you don't want to disturb the status quo. So being violent or having violence in the world works in both ways, whether it's directly happening or you're afraid that it's going to happen, the fear of violence happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... I mean, it makes sense to me that the first thing you'd want to try is nonviolence, you know. So when I think of Gandhi, I think of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Peace Pilgrim. It makes sense, you know. The first thing you do when you have a conflict, any sane person, they're going to want to sit down and have a council. Let's try to talk it out. But after all this time, it's pretty obvious to me that a council is not going to work. Um, For one thing, the other side doesn't give a shit what you think or what you (laughs) say. They're absolutely, positively, fanatically sure that they are right And for another thing, they don't mind lying. They're going to tell you whatever it fucking takes to shut you up for a while and bring you back on board if possible. And if not possible, they will use violence on you in a heartbeat. This is so routine that it doesn't shock anybody. Of course people with guns are going to show up at your house. Of course they're going to start watching you. You're going to get on some fucking list. Um, That's the way the civilization works. And that's exactly why we need to fight it. Um, And in that that line of thinking, I think it's, you know, really crucial to recognize that the nonviolent methods have been tried. Even when I think of Gandhi, you know, he he accomplished remarkable things through nonviolence. But towards the end of his life, before he was shot through violence, um, 
the Muslims and the Hindus that he was fighting so hard for, they he couldn't stop the violence between them. It just erupted. It kept going. It kept going. Still um, going. So when people say that, you know, Gandhi, what he did, it worked. I'm not convinced. I think it, he did remarkable things. And I'm actually, Gandhi's a hero of mine because of his strength and his courage. Um, but I think we've tried it. We had some really remarkable, incredible people. And, you know, I just can't say enough for these people that they stood up so bravely and tried nonviolent methods. But we're on the brink. It has not stopped civilization. It has not stopped any of the things that need to be stopped. It's time to consider Plan B. And it's it's to our credit that we tried something other than violence first, because that's not what we see coming out of our, our mainstream culture. Um, ironically, to me, as I was saying earlier, it's hard to find support for violent, a violent, violent resistance, although <laughs> it's getting easier and easier, I think. Um, but we're within a culture that is so dependent on extreme routine violence, violence every day. It's on the news, standing armies, CIA fucking upsetting countries all over the world, um, South America for U.S. interest. Um, how many bases do we have? How many countries do we have U.S. bases in? I don't know, a lot. It was like 180 something, right? That's something. the number that like, it's something like that. It's a ridiculous amount of countries that we have military presence, we people with occupying. guns. And why the fuck do these people need guns? To control people who don't want to be controlled. Otherwise, you wouldn't need the fucking gun. So we are in an extremely violent culture. I mean, I just... To me, that's the first thing I feel like I need to hammer into the head of people that that reject violence is we're already in the violence. Unless you're living out in the woods in some place you built yourself, um, you know, living completely off the land, you're benefiting from violence. People are committing violence to feed you, to bring you the things that you depend on. And we talk a lot about this in our episode, what was it, Drain on Society? Well, actually, we talked about it in Unibomb, but we might have talked oh. about it then, too. You cannot claim nonviolence while benefiting from this culture. Bottom line. Bottom line. Um, and that brings me to the importance of working on self-sufficiency skills. You know, if you're going to talk about fighting this culture, I know so many people, and again, I'm going to bring it back to Derek Jensen and Daniel Quinn. Another thing Derek says that bothers me in his books, and Again, I'm picking on Derek Jensen, but I love his books. Like, read his books. I tell everybody, man, like, if you've read Daniel Quinn and you like that, check out some of Derek Jensen's books. He's got incredible things to say. But another thing he brings up in his books that bothers me, because he's brought it up a few times, is I don't know what the birds outside my my house are, are saying. I don't know, like, which call goes to which bird. And every time I read that, I'm somebody who, like, started out as a naturalist before I started, you know, really feeling like a strong anarchist. I'm like, why the fuck don't you learn? <laughs> you know, if you feel like this is an important thing and you're regretting you don't know it, fucking learn it. Make the time for it like I did. Um, you know, it's just you got to work on these self-sufficiency skills. Otherwise, there's a conflict of interest. How are you going to try to kill the cow while you know you're still suckling in its teat? Hmm. What are you going to do? You're starving to death. Not many people are going to fight for their right to have nothing and die and starve. 
And unless you have some self-sufficiency skills, like we talk about in our other podcast, foraging, knowing how to start fires, uh, some basic shelter building, you know, just going out there and practicing. Like right now, nobody's going to show up with guns at your house because you're practicing this stuff. Just make a little bit of time. Go on a camping trip. Just push an edge a little bit. Add a, add one new plant to your salad, to your meal. Um Start learning these self-sufficiency skills because there's always going to be a hypocrisy and a conflict of interest if you fight and you're not working on that. And that's something I was talking about in Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the first step of Escaping Society, and this is where Derek Jensen and Daniel Quinn and a lot of these authors are really helpful, is seeing the problem, seeing the history they're not teaching, looking this this demon in the eye and seeing it for what it is, this Wetico. And at the same time, seeing it in yourself, you know, there's a lot of people that when they start seeing it, they start pointing fingers. You're the problem. It's because you don't eat tofu. Mm -hmm. It's because you don't drive a Prius. You got to see it in yourself. It has fucked us all up. You are crazy if you're in this culture. Your mind is not healthy. You can't have a healthy mind and live like this and be raised by parents who their whole lives have lived like this as well Mm -hmm. and gone to a school with teachers who have lived like this their whole lives as well and then indoctrinate you with the same shit they got indoctrinated with. You can't come out of that with a completely unscathed, healthy mind. So mindfulness. And then the second step is self-sufficiency. And I think the first step of self-sufficiency in this culture is a lot of scavenging. Um, A lot of like Knowing how to use trash, knowing how to upcycle it. To me, that's right up there. You know, it it goes dovetails with bushcraft because um, bushcraft is hard nowadays. You know, we live in a we've destroyed a lot of the land base out there. And then I think you're ready to fight when you've got some self sufficiency because you're coming from a strong platform. Yeah, and you you can feel and know like what you are fighting for because right now it's kind of abstract, theoretical, like Jensen or Quinn was talking about. But if you can really get into it, really live it, and see, like, how amazing it is, you might be more keen on protecting and fighting for it. And that leads me to something that we talked about in, what was it, If I Didn't Have Kids? Um, I don't remember. What if a member of your family was being killed every day, just one by one, like if you don't do anything today, boom, another one goes. Would you wait for the killer to change their mind? Would you wait for the killer to die while you keep giving them bullets? Would you complain about it? Run away? Or fight? And is this not the situation that we are all in? Yeah, and I see all these choices as like... You know, I like especially on uh, Daniel Quinn websites. I've run into this argument a lot, where people say, "I think we need to fight for people to change their consciousness." So to me, this is the same thing as that killer killing a member of your family every day, and you're waiting for him to change his mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's going to get enlightened, you know. But in the meantime, what about all the death he's causing? What about the destruction? Or is that enough? You're just and isn't that a cop out? Because a lot of these, most of these people, all of these people that say that are participating in the civilization. They're benefiting from it. They're feeding it. So what a hypocritical stance that is. And, you know, like waiting for the killer to die at the same time you're still giving them bullets. You know, that's the same as people saying, uh, civilization's going to collapse anyway. You don't need to do nothing. Why bother? Mm. You know, but hell, what if it just 
goes on for another 10 years. Didn't you not feed it with your tax dollars, Mm -hmm. with your consumerism? Um, You're not neutral. You're not just waiting for civilization to die again. You've taken the weak route. You've taken the safe route where you get to benefit um, while things die for your benefit. And, of course, the protesters, these are the people that just complain about the killer. Oh, I really wish that killer wasn't killing people. Man, I hate that killer. I'm not on board with that killer. But they do nothing to stop it. They just complain. And so the killer laughs, you know, like, okay, you don't like me. I think I'm okay with that. Bam, there goes your brother. Open letter on Facebook. (laughs) Um, So whoever's killing the planet, I just wanted to let you know it's really important to me for you to stop. And running away. You know, this is another thing that gets thrown around a lot is abandonment. Abandon this culture. But who actually does it? I mean, maybe I don't hear from these people because they abandon this culture. Maybe there's more people doing it than I think. But I know a whole lot of people that say that is the course of action. And maybe they're learning some bushcraft, you know, but not enough to, to reject this culture, not enough to not feed it anymore. And even if you do, even if you actually master this and can go out in the woods like Ted Kaczynski, mm-hmm. you're going to probably see what he learned. They come for you. Even before you start bombing people, I'm talking about like Ted, before he started making these bombs and being on the FBI's most wanted list, fucking the bulldozer showed up, the housing developments. You can't go far enough. Yeah. You know, and that's the same thing again. The killer killing a member of your family every day. Your mother's on the list to be killed tomorrow and you just fucking ran away. (laughs) You know, I think about this guy, Baba, you know, the 90 year old wise man, you know, when he says there is a time to fight for what you love. And this is it. And when Teresa asks, is this not the situation? The member of your family, I mean, it's a very literal, like, you know, I can make analogies like there's 200 species falling every day. These species are members of your family. As the uh, Haudenosaunee say, all my relations, you know, and they're talking about all the animals and plants around them. The ecosystems, these are part of you. Those trees are your lungs. And your mother's lungs. This is a part of your family. And let's bring it on home. Like, if that's too abstract for you, your own fucking children. And it's not about, like, I've heard it brought up, you know, some people act like it's in the future. Like, oh, what about the future? What about the... No, actually, your kids are getting fucked right now. Mm. I've heard they've got, like, the average child has over 80 foreign chemicals, poorly understood chemicals in their body right now. They're getting their minds warped with this bullshit technology that they're immersed in. They, they're, they're losing the ability to socialize and communicate. They're getting violence done to them right now. And all the while, our land base has been screwed up and decimated. So in the future, if and when civilization does fall, that's what your kids inherit. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to practice those skills, those survival skills, because there's not going to be anything, anything to survive off of. And I find movies, to switch gears a little bit, really interesting, you know, the way they use propaganda. And uh, I talked about our distraction, you know, so maybe it's kind of ironic for me to bring up a movie here. Um, But within this distraction, first of all, you see a lot of propaganda. You see people that like bad guys that want to change the system. And more and more, you're seeing like sophisticated bad guys that have really good arguments against the system. But then they fucking like 
go off the rails and do something really crazy that's designed to make the audience lose support for the bad guy. Mm. The good guy steps in, status quo is maintained, and we can all cross our fingers and hope that doing the same shit we did yesterday is suddenly going to work and the world's going to get better all by itself. Um, But one movie that I find interesting that I don't put in that genre is The Hunger Games, the Hunger Games series. I haven't read the book, so I'm only talking about the movies here. Um, And man, the analogy with our culture is really profound. You've got all these, what they call them, districts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like the, the loggers. It's all the people that have like been kind of coerced to have a job that feeds the capital. It all goes to the capital. Mm -hmm. And so when this exploitation finally blows up and people are ready to resist, you know, you've got all the guys in their like little shiny white suits, sort of like stormtroopers from Star Trek. And these are the cops. Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah. These are the cops. They're protecting the Capitol. And I love that line that uh, Katniss Everdeen says in Hunger Games or Mockingjay, um... That would be Mockingjay Part 2, the movie, where she says, We all have one enemy, and that's President Snow. He corrupts everyone and everything. He turns the best of us against each other. Stop killing for him. Tonight, turn your weapons to the Capitol. Turn your weapons to Snow. And I love that. That is violent resistance. She's not saying, let's get our cardboard signs out and show these motherfuckers how unhappy we are. (laughs) White hot memes. Let's sit down till they drag us off screaming. Oh, that's going to take them down. (laughs) No, she's talking about stopping them, doing everything we can to stop them. And I really love that sentiment in that that movie um, because everything she says there, you know, it's, it's relevant. Like... Are we is our government not corrupting everyone and everything? It's not just President Snow, President Trump, President Obama. It's whoever we put in charge there. It's the system itself. Um, as we saw, that was another thing I liked about Hunger Games is after this revolution, that character from the military district played by uh, shit, I can't remember her name, but she's about to take over and Katniss realizes More it's the, the same, same damn thing. Yep. And she ends up killing her, you know. It doesn't matter who the leader is if the system stays intact. Spoiler. And, you know, turns the best of us against each other. How many of us would be brothers and sisters, comrades, fighting for a common cause, a healthy planet, something we can love, our, our, our children's future, but we're turned against each other with stupid crap? Are you a feminist? Well, are you a feminist that, like, accepts transgender people as women, or do you not accept transgender people as women? Now <laughs> we we're enemies. Yeah, we can't fight on the same Yeah, side. we're not on the same team. <laughs> and, you know, it just goes on and on. Political division. Hell, what fucking college basketball team you root for? I mean, just so many divisions that we get turned against each other. And when she says, stop killing for him, my God, whether you've joined the army or the police force, you know, the obvious violent people, we're all killing for them. If you go to the grocery store, as Teresa and I still do, we know where there's dollars go. Follow the dollar. It goes to, like, rich people who exploit the land and rape the land. We are part of that killing, and we're still doing it. And I love that, that t- uh, turn your weapons to the capital. My God, wouldn't that be a, a tremendous battle cry to hear in our culture if there was enough of resistance and, like, tomorrow night, you know, they'd say, t- tomorrow night, it's it. Everybody, if you've got a weapon, turn it to the capital. This stops tomorrow night. Wow, what a day that would be. 
Well, you mentioned briefly Star Wars, so I thought I would read something <laughs> that I found out just the other day. Um, Star Wars, the story, uh, was inspired. George Lucas, who wrote it, he was in or directed it. He was inspired to create it by Vietnam. He saw the Viet Cong as the clever heroes, the rebel alliance. And surprise, surprise, the U.S. as the evil galactic empire led by Palpatine, who was actually, uh, <laughs> he was based off of Richard Nixon. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't until you told me. <laughs> yeah, and Star Wars, man, that's another really great analogy, uh, they came up with that trilogy with Anakin Skywalker, you know, the one right after the original. And even though it wasn't a great trilogy, it took a lot of crap, and I understand why it wasn't the, the best movies. But I loved how the Emperor is playing both sides against each other, and that's how he keeps everybody distracted and ends up taking over the government. Um, you know, that's the kind of insidious, and of course his name is, when the Sith is Darth Sidious, that's the kind of insidious tactics our government uses keep us divided and play both sides oh you don't like the republicans well you better mm -hmm. vote for the democrats that'll change things mm -hmm. and meanwhile they're laughing in their sleeves and like year after year political party after political party nothing important changes just enough window dressing to to distract the the idiots you know that aren't paying attention um and I just wanted to list some people that have used violence, you know, because I think our culture actually kind of plays us a little bit. Every city has Martin Luther King Jr., you know, a, a, a road named after it <laughs> or something. In the United States. You know, he gets like really thrown up in front of us as like nonviolent resistance. Look at this great guy. And he was a great guy. And by the way, I've read some shit that towards the end of his life, he was wondering if nonviolent resistance was enough. He was starting to think more and more like, man, I think we actually need to maybe have more violence. Mm -hmm. um, so we got Robin Hood, you know, like he took from the rich and gave to the poor. You got John Brown, the abolitionist who like hacked people with a sword if they supported slavery and then tried to steal tried to steal ammunitions um, where he was tried and hung. You got Tecumseh who's trying to unite all the indigenous tribes to fight our civilization before it gets any bigger. You got Chief Joseph who had a war ongoing on the, in the early days of our of the United States on the East Coast. You got Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull with the Woo! Lakota. Yeah, fighting like on the plains, you know, some of the last like really great battles between the indigenous people of this land, like violent all out war battles and our culture. You got the Animal Liberation Front who said, fuck your laws. We're not going to wait for you to like manipulate us and get around to deciding that animals have rights. We're going to start doing something. And later, the Earth Liberation Front who started burning shit down. And if you don't think violence works, check out the Earth Liberation Front. <laughs> there was a lot of shit that people were protesting for years and nothing happened. They burned that shit down and it stopped overnight. You got Earth First who's like spiking trees and finding ways to, to discourage and stop loggers from destroying the forest. Um... Of course, Ted Kaczynski, one of our favorites, yeah. He went out there and tried to get away from our culture. It wouldn't let him, so he started bombing the fuck out of people. <laughs> you got Malcolm X, who I love. He says, we need to stop this culture by any means necessary. And uh, Amen. And he's looking at the white people, and he's saying, like, they're the devil. You know, look at, look at where the white people go. And 
I don't agree with them completely because I think the problem with civilization, like one of the things I like to point out to white people is we are actually indigenous people that have had a horrible thing happen to us as well. Let it unite us so we can fight for a common cause. But I like how he was pointing out civilization, even though he was calling it white people, like the way they live is fucked up. We need to fight. Nelson Mandela in his early days, um, he used violence. It was only after prison that he became known, uh, became the peaceful person that he's known as. The American Indian Movement, uh, Eric Rudolph, you know, bombing abortion clinics. And right now I'm not trying to talk about necessarily their causes, how you feel about abortion clinics, but people that stood up to the system, whatever they believed, and used violence. You got Timothy McVeigh, you got Nat Turner, you know, the slave rebellion in Virginia. He didn't just wait for white people to have an elevation of consciousness. <laughs> you know, he didn't say, screw you guys. I'm going to run away to the woods. He's like, we need to fight. We need to fight for our people. Fight with weapons. Actually fight. You got Antifa, you know, and I, I've got a lot of beefs with Antifa. But at least they're showing up to places and trying to, like, escalate some shit because they see that what's going on is not working. Let's push it to the next level. And that I do like about them. You got Alexander Berkman, who shot, um, shit, Carnegie's partner. Do you remember his name? I think his last name was Fisk. Fisk, yes. Yeah. This rich bastard that's exploiting people. They're having, like, fucking riots. He's bringing in the, the Pinkertons and security guards to shoot down just people that want, like, living wages. So Alexander Berkman goes in there, fucking shoots the guy. And while he's in prison, he writes this great book, The ABC of Anarchism. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Uh, you got the Bonaut gang in France. You know, they're driving around and, like, robbing banks and shit. You got the Lowry gang here in North Carolina, some uh, Lumbee Indians. And it's it, you got slaves, you got black people, you got white people. Um, they're all part of this gang. And the local police enforcement was not taking care of them, so they turned against the system. And they went out in the woods, kind of like it reminded me almost uh, like Robin Hood reading about this guy. You got, oh, shit, you want to say this name? Uh, no, but I'll try it. Leon Chorgos. We'll go with that. But he's the guy that shot McKinley, took down a president. And uh, listen to our U.S. President's Exposed podcast with McKinley in it if you want to know about this guy. If there was ever a president to get shot, he was pretty high up there. <laughs> um, you got the Luddites. They didn't just, like, you know, try to get their political puppet in office and hope that he would do what he said And year after year. They went and started breaking shit. And you got Harriet Tubman. Again, she's not going through legal channels. She's just not she's not just protesting. She's breaking the law, actively breaking the law, taking a risk to get people out of the South and to try to help escape slaves find freedom. So this is by no means an exhaustive list, but I just wanted to point out that this idea of violence within our culture, like violently fighting, has a precedent. It's been done and it has had effects. Um, yeah. Anybody want to add to that list offhand? No, but that reminds me, um, if you're listening to this, we're, we're probably going to release this, what you say in nine days or something. Yeah. I wanted to point that out too, that if you hear this, like when it comes out, um, if you listen to it the very first day it's out, which is always a Sunday, if we can, this is nine days old. So if we talk about any kind of current events, um, just keep that in mind that things are moving really fast in our culture right now. So nine days could be a long time and things could be quite a bit different. And I also wanted to point that out because um, where we live at in North Carolina, for the moment anyway, 
we are um, <laughs> we're encountering a lot of challenges with uh, getting online. So we had a cyber virus attack the city. Um, all the computers at the library and the Wi-Fi was offline. And then double whammy, the coronavirus, they closed like virtually all the places we could go to get online and do research. Yeah, so our research, like we're always kind of, you know, so we don't have steady Wi-Fi. We're always like going to the library. We're kind of, uh, I'd say, more uh, challenged in our (laughs) research than probably the average person is. So we're exceptionally challenged right now. The hardest this coronavirus is hitting us right now is the library. I feel great, by the way. I mean, like health-wise. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just feel like, I mean, there's pollen out. I just feel like really good. <laughs> um, no corona for me. Yeah, I feel optimistic about what's happening in our, our culture and our world right now. Um, <laughs> that too. Other than, <laughs> I got to say, the library, it, it was a little hard because I couldn't get the books oh. that I wanted. So I've gone from reading like Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn to Island of the, the Blue, Blue Dolphins. Dolphins. <laughs> so that's a bit of a transition for me. But other than that, you know. It was we're, a good book. Yeah, it's kind of been an excuse for us to, it, it was a good book. It was, it's been an excuse for us to be out in the country and kind of making time to do more of what we wanted to do anyway, which is like cook on the fire and like, you know, just have time to do nothing. You know, you feel like reading, go read in the shade or whatever. It's like in olden times. Olden, yeah. But it was especially bitter because right before they closed the libraries, the day before we were talking about going to the library. The yeah, day. I had three books I was waiting for and I've been waiting for a long time and they sent an email like, oh, you can come pick them up now. And I was like, oh, we'll get it tomorrow. That's on our route fucking no warning the libraries are closed because of the state of emergency so <laughs> that sucked yeah bitter bitter and bitter, we bitter. don't we don't have any guns unfortunately we <laughs> did not uh i wanted to go to a shooting range and like learn how to how to shoot guns sorry i had to situate myself <laughs> but switching gears here talking about gun control And what exactly that means in a culture that thrives on violence. I feel like there have been a lot of arguments about gun ownership, especially the types of guns that are being owned in sometimes huge quantities by like one person. But I also feel like, why are we listening to whatever this agenda is to control more and more our ability to bear arms because, I mean, there could be a time when no one's allowed to have guns and what the hell are we going to do? How are we going to fight? Yeah, I I do not support gun control laws. Um, If there was some way to, like, remove all guns, I would support that. If we could just, like, there was some magic button that, like, all the guns could vanish, yeah, I personally don't like guns. I don't own one, though more and more I'm thinking I should. And uh, I've shot a gun maybe twice in my life, and I didn't like it. It was it was loud. It was just I don't know. It didn't it didn't <laughs> it felt rude if that makes <laughs> if that makes any sense. And yet I'm seeing more and more the use of a gun. And what I don't like about gun control laws is they're not removing guns. They're only leaving them in the hands of the people I trust the least. The monopoly. Yeah. So I'm not saying these fat rednecks who brag about their big gun collection are ever going to rise up. 
and do anything useful with their damn guns. But they could. As long as the guns are out there, there's a chance um, that there could be a revolt on somewhat equal footing. But if we give up that last step, you know, that last, like, uh, right, I hate the word right because it's just a, a thing that our culture makes up. It decides what we have the right to do and what we don't. But that last tool, um, wow, we are really at another level of severe disadvantage then. And all the cops that we know we can't fucking trust, they keep their guns. All the soldiers who are inflicting more violence than any goddamn shooter. You know, people say we need to stop the shooters. That's the big argument for stopping gun control. These soldiers, these armies are doing way more violence than the shooters every day. Every day. Yeah, just ugly, ugly shit. And they're going to keep their guns. Um, I don't see the distinction. I don't see that a soldier going and shooting strangers because he was ordered to is not a murderer. And somebody who actually has a beef with someone like Ted Kaczynski using violence is a terrorist. Um, It just doesn't make sense to me. And nobody's been able to explain that in a way that makes any damn sense to me. So for those reasons, I'm not on board with gun control, and it is regretful that these shooters are going and like going into schools and shooting kids. I'm not supporting that, but why are they doing it? Trying to prevent them from using guns to do these things doesn't address the problem, and this liberal uh, democratic reaction to just like locking up the guns is a fool's errand. What makes these people so disconnected, so miserable that they want to do these things? There is a rotten, deep problem in our civilization. And instead of taking the guns away, I think we need to use the guns more Mm -hmm. in appropriate ways. We need to take down the things that are driving so much of us into madness. To the Capitol. Maybe, yeah, Mm -hmm. point those guns to the Capitol. Maybe you're not a shooter, so you don't understand the shooter. But maybe you do something else, you know, to to try to numb your own misery. And we're just quoting Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We don't support any of this. (laughs) We don't support anything that's illegal. This is like part of the Katniss fan club. Yeah, we're just exploring the topic of violence. So that's what I have to say about guns. And, uh... You know, I like I said, I, I'm thinking more and more like I should get a gun and learn how to use it more because I can imagine a lot of scenarios in the near future. I mean, look how fast coronavirus came upon us. I heard about this shit in China. It's just more of the same crap. And now it's like greatly affecting our day to day lives. It's here. Yeah. So I can it, to me, this is a great time to reflect and realize, oh, wow, this isn't just shit that happens on TV. Mm. This is our life. This is stuff that historically has happened over and over. When it happens, it happens fast. And I would imagine every time it happens, there's a vast majority of people that are like, wow, I didn't see that coming. I wish I'd have prepared. Yeah. So I'm thinking, do I want to be that next wave of fools that like didn't read the writing on the wall? <laughs> so, you know, having some guns around seems like a good idea to me. And one of my arguments against guns has always been, well, the bullets run out. What if you can't go to Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart anymore and buy bullets, you know? Is that really going to take care of your family? The answer is no, which goes back to learning those those skills Mm -hmm. that you don't need the government. You know, a gun is not a replacement for those skills, but that gun is going to give you a hell of an advantage for a while. It's going to give you a little buffer. Mm -hmm. It's going to give you a step to protect your family and maybe to fight people who need to be fought. Because our culture is that fucking sick. And has been for a long time. Here's here's some uh, examples of violence used by this culture. Oh, 
shit, you took mine. Oh. <laughs> well, let's start with, shall I continue? Let's start with genocide of indigenous people worldwide. Yeah, and this is not meant to be an exhaustive uh, list, but, you know, for people that are still, you know, your, your true believers, your patriots, we just want to list some of the, the things that our culture does that is violent. And let's start with shit that, like, our culture does to the people they perceive as enemies. You got the Marines. Uh, the Marines were, were made, correct me if I'm wrong, I remember when we were studying presidents that we talked about the beginning of the Marines, and wasn't it around the Burberry wars like the marines that are... was the navy but quite possibly also the marines yeah the marines were created to be sent into other countries yeah. to invade they are invaders that's what the marines are to visit violence on other countries and why do we need to go to other countries you defend people that are invading your country here in this country you go to other <laughs> countries because you're the fucking invader exactly Okay. Well, how about agriculture? Specifically, totalitarian agriculture. And all of that entails. Talk about the killing. Well, we'll talk more about that later. But just killing of all the different peoples, all the different tribes, the plants, the trees. Yeah, the deforestation involved. um, And the killing of the topsoil. I've heard it said that, you know, this way of tilling the soil and everything kills the topsoil. You're actually killing the skin of the earth. Mm. And I've heard it said that we basically finished skinning the earth in the 40s and 50s. That was it. And ever since then, we've been playing a game of like kind of keeping our fate at arm's length with chemicals, Mm -hmm. you know, pumping shit, ugly shit into the soil and, you know, largely petroleum based. So people say we're eating petroleum now. We're eating gas It's going into the soil and becoming the plant matter and feeding these plants. We're eating really nasty shit. Even if you think you're eating plants and it's just strictly good, there's no strictly good anymore. Um, The people in former generations, before the 40s and 50s, and God knows they tried. There were a lot of people trying to fight the civilization, Um, but they didn't. There wasn't enough support for it. And so now here we are eating fuel with kids with like 80 different foreign chemicals in their bodies. And, you know, this is all based on agriculture. And the need, when you deplete soil, when you grow this much food and you kill your soil, you have to spread. It becomes the engine for other forms of violence because you need to take land that other people are using. Often, you know, at the beginning of our our culture, in a sustainable way that they've been on for a long time. We need to go and use it up and then spread some more. Um... Yeah, study study the history of agriculture. You know, this is shit that I had never heard of in school, um, and it shocked me to start learning about it. Speaking of spreading. Oh, I took yours. Um, no, you didn't. You were just following up. <laughs> and Columbus, my God, the discoverer, you know, quotey fingers, of America. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the first asshole from our culture that we have give credit for for coming over here. The violence he visited, you know, like kidnapping people, killing them, you know, as he's writing about how kind and wonderful these people are, he's exploiting them. And he writes like the word gold is used in his journals over and over and over. Um, Just when people, members of our civilization show up, violence shows up. And getting back to that notion of just taking and taking exploitation 
and rape. Rape not just of human people, but of all the different peoples of the earth. Um, just the tree people, like I said, the, the water beings, all of them just being completely fucked by our culture. Yeah, we are a rape culture. When I hear people talk about, um, you know, we need to change the way we raise men um, so they don't abuse women. That is true, but it's such a small part of the truth. It's almost better. It's almost more misleading than helpful, because if you're not changing the whole way you live, I don't think you can remove just one little peg and say, oh, it's fixed. We're a rape culture. We exploit everything. We objectify everything. Even the way our our job market is set up, to me, is a form of rape. It's a form of non-consenting. I'm going to force you into a situation because this is the only way that you you feel like you can survive this situation, and I'm going to take something from you. It's rape. Just right down to the roots, we're in a rape culture. Mm-hmm. Um. And slavery, my God, you know, like this country is built on the backs of slaves and that that shall tell slavery where people are treated strictly as commodities has evolved into wage slavery. We're all still slaves. If you think you have freedom, um, see how well you're going to do just giving up whatever your work is and doing whatever does not make you money that you might want to do. Try to live that way and see how much freedom you have. More and more, slavery is taking on a different flavor. They figured out how to make slavery work better and Part of that is making it invisible. Most of the slaves don't know they're slaves, and that works wonderfully. Because what are you going to rebel against if you don't know anything else, if it doesn't even cross your imagination to live in a different way? Um, You know, to give just enough money for you to get by, unless you want to try to exploit and become a slave master yourself, then you have this great opportunity to go and be one of the big rapists, you know, like screw more people. Um... To me, that's imprisonment, and that's definitely a form of violence, keeping people, robbing people of their freedom. It's an inherent birthright of every human being to have their freedom. And we don't see in any other culture um, people that don't have that. In our culture, none of us have that. That's a form of violence. My God, science and everything that science stands for. Scientists want to objectify everything and control everything. That's why they want to know why and how everything works. They want to have absolute control over it. And it's no wonder that our culture is just uh, enamored by science and at every age level. Nuclear weapons. How can you even make an argument uh, about a culture that that isn't one of the most violent cultures on earth, the most violent culture on earth with nuclear weapons. That just speaks for itself to me. State law and institutions. And when we talk about state law, just laws in general and institutions, when I think of institutions, I think about like prisons or mental hospitals versus having in, for example, a lever culture or a tribal society, unwritten rules. So you're not having someone break a law and then they're going to be punished. So maybe some people don't break that law because they're afraid of it. You have these unwritten understandings amongst your tribe that it makes sense. That's why people follow it. We were just listening to that podcast. Again, great example. Like if the woman was reporting, like in this society, if you cut 
one tree down, then you plant two. And it's just understood. That's how you respect life. That's how you show your respect in that culture. Mm-hmm. And industrial society in general, you know, just all the things that accompany a society based on industry, pollution, you know, the way we foul our the water, the air, um, and extinctions, just this mass extinction. Extinction is a normal part of existence on the planet, you know, selection. But this level of extinctions, this degree that is directly tied to our actions, this is based on industrial society. This is a horrible form of violence and the capitalism that fuels it. The idea that anything is okay if you're making profit and if you have gotten rich, that justifies itself. You've done something right by our standards. Otherwise, you wouldn't be rich. You played the game and you won. This is the whole philosophy behind violence. This is what we're fighting. And thinking about any wars, but in particular the Korean War, Vietnam, and and thereafter, just the absolute horrific atrocities that our U.S. military, and I say our, the United States military, uh, wrought upon these areas of the world. Not only shooting at people that they believed were spreading the evils of communism, but killing women, children, oh, raping them and then killing them, and then burning their bodies or dumping them in a grave. Um, But also, once again, just like they did with the indigenous people of North America, with the indigenous people of um, Ireland, for example, destroying the land base. So dumping in Vietnam, dumping napalm to just destroy the canopy cover to pollute their water and their soil so that for future generations they have birth defects and and all sorts of horrific uh, medical conditions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we just mentioned is things we've done to people that we have perceived as our enemy and convinced the citizens that they are our enemy or just kind of side effects of the civilization itself. Now let's give you some examples of violence used intentionally by our government against its own citizens. Oh my God, the CIA and all of their weird operations for domination of the world. Yeah, the PSYOPs, like, you know, they, based on a lot of Edward Bernays's crap, we were just watching a movie called Kill the Messenger, and, uh, you know, he kind of blew the cover on the CIA being involved in bringing cocaine into the country and profiting from it um, and flooding the black neighborhoods with crack. And the way they used violence against him was psyops, mental warfare. Um, they just discredited him. They started stirring up his past. They started, like, rocking the boats. They started um, messing with the people that were his sources. So they would, like, turn around and say, no, I never talked to the guy, mm-hmm. you know, and just really ruining the guy's life. So this is one way that uh, our government uses to control its its population. Yeah, and that guy, that was a real journalist, Gary Webb, I believe was his name. Yeah. He um, he evidently committed suicide mm-hmm. <laughs> seven years later. Yeah, two bullets in his head, and they determined it was a suicide. Yeah. 
Um, right at the beginning of our country, George Washington, we talked about the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, and George Washington sent the army out. Here's citizens of this country that aren't happy with what's happening already. You know, the taxes imposed on their whiskey. And how does this country react? Send the army. Inquisitions, whether it's, uh, let's see, religious, uh, like the Spanish Inquisition, whether it's uh, political, like the McCarthy era, whether it's uh, a witch hunt <laughs> in any time. MK Ultra, you know, back to the CIA. I mean, this was direct experimenting on, on the citizens of the United States with hallucinogenic drugs, with uh, psychological warfare, including what they did to Ted Kaczynski. Just, you know, really abusive ways to try to break people. Um, and they were using us as guinea pigs. Um, and, you know, whenever I start talking about shit like this, there's always a group of people that's like, oh, conspiracy theory. Ooh, listen to the nut job. This shit is fucking documented. They've got the, uh, what do they call it, that Chomsky brings up where they things are released like, after a period of time, there's a law where certain sensitive information gets released because I guess they figure, you know, enough people will just kind of chalk it up to the past. Like, oh, that's horrible, but we've got it fixed now. So there's information that you wouldn't think you would be able to find that is copped up to by the CIA and the government. Oh, you're talking about, like, declassified? Declassified information, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot, you know, a lot of the stuff we're talking about. The CIA and the government themselves admit this happened. We're not just talking about some random, you know, nut job somewhere that just like, oh, what if this happened? This is researchable. It's it's out there. Mm-hmm. So MK Ultra. Um, state militias. How many times has the national? Are you talking about national guards or different? Different types of soldiers. I'm not talking about anything. You said state militias. Oh well, okay. Um, I guess I'll refer to the National Guard being called out on American citizens, whether they are protesting or supposedly, you know, being violent, too violent, so we got to put them down, or um, suspicion of uh, illicit activities. Like, there's this thing, I need to read more about it, but I think it happened during the Reagan administration. And I'm not sure where, I think, I feel like it was either somewhere like Detroit or Chicago, but it was with the MOVE uh, group, M-O-V-E, and they, like, sent in, they, like, sent in helicopters or something that were equipped with bombs and just, like, flattened the, the city block. American citizens. Yeah, and, like, I'm thinking about, like, 1877 and Wobblies and, uh... The hobo army, the hobo crisis, you know, again and again in history, militias get called in, state militias, you know, to put down the citizens of that state who are often fighting for um, a better living. So, you know, this long history of using violence against its own citizens. And then you got biological weapons. I mean, holy crap. Uh, oh, yeah, I did. I did some research on that. Yeah, you wanted to talk about that, right? Mm hmm. So these are actual uh, instances, not all. I, I got this from a website called businessinsider.com, and they were reviewing a book by Dr. Leonard Cole. The name of the book is Clouds of Secrecy, the Army's Germ Warfare Tests Over Populated Areas. And supposedly this book has 239 known instances where they, it goes over in this one book. Um, it, this 
article also had a link, and I'll try to um, share this information on our Facebook page, but it had a link to one of those declassified documents um, from the United States government. So here's one. This happened September 20th, 1950. A U.S. Navy ship off the San Francisco coast used a giant hose to spray microbes into the San Francisco fog. They wanted to see how it would affect the 800,000 residents who had no idea that this was happening. The tests continued for seven days. Days after the test at a Stanford hospital, uh, they started seeing a patient with the same bacteria that they had been spraying into the air. It was rare and had never been seen in the San Francisco area before. Um, it was Serratia marcescens was the name of the bacteria. Um, and they found out later that it was a pathogen, like a, a insidious pathogen for uh, humans. And another one. Let's see. These are so much fun because they're so fucking ridiculous. 1951 at the Norfolk Naval Supply Center. Experimenters packed crates with fungal spores to see how they would affect the people unpacking those crates. This was done by the army, by the way, and the fungus was Aspergillus fumigatus. The army intentionally exposed a disproportionate number of black people to the organism. Most of the people that were working at the supply center were black. And the researchers claimed that they were preparing for an attack that might target black citizens. Quote, since Negroes are more susceptible to coccidioides than whites, this fungus disease was simulated against U.S. citizens. Yet another biological weapon was done in 1966. It was called the Study of Vulnerability of Subway Passengers in New York City to Covert Attacks with Biological Agents. Military officials would go onto the subway in New York City and break light bulbs that were full of bacteria. They would break them on the tracks and see how far they would spread throughout the city. They did this for six days using Bacillus subtilis or Globigii. Sorry for the mispronunciations. Um, this was later known to cause food poisoning. Uh, one light bulb was dropped at 14th Street, and it easily spread bacteria up to at least 58th Street. Now just to see how it would, you know, just to see <laughs> the uh, effects of it. And one more. I don't actually have the year for this, but it was called Operation Large Area Coverage. And I love these names. There was actually <laughs> one for, like, they dropped um, fleas to see if they could infect the fleas later and have them land on troops in enemy territory. Yeah, and, called, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it was called Operation Big Itch. <laughs> and, you know, taking those things into consideration, I've heard people, uh, I've heard it suggested that Lyme's disease was a weaponized, you know, thing that got released um, and a lot of kind of suspicious uh facts regarding where it started and things like that. And I used to be one of those people that kind of rolled my eyes and like, oh man, you know, conspiracy theorist. But my God, the facts that are actually facts are like legitimate declassified shit. You know, to think that suddenly like 
with all the things happening in the world, our government just like got enlightened no. that like suddenly they accepted Jesus. Like, you know, I'm starting to think the ridiculous people are the people that think these things and think that they're not doing this shit anymore. Well, let me share. I want to share this with you because this is the epitome of ridiculous um, by the government. So Operation Large Area Coverage. This took place anywhere from Minneapolis to St. Louis. They would have low-flying planes starting at the Canadian border, and they would fly down the Midwest, dropping their payloads, which were biological or chemical weapons and powders from the, uh, the low-flying planes, over cities. They also tested from city rooftops and at intersections. To prevent suspicion, the military pretended and told city officials that the tests involved efforts to measure the ability to lay smoke screens to hide cities in case of a nuclear attack. Days later, the powder would be located 1,200 miles away. <laughs> you got to be fucking kidding me. And no one, no one stopped them. No one seemed to rise up, at least not that I read about. How many people went to prison for that? Probably nobody. Yeah, probably nobody. And, uh, let's see, just before we move on, uh, from the biological weapons, there are 16 countries that have or are suspected of having biological weapons, including Canada, China, Cuba, France, Germany, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Japan, Libya, North Korea, Russia, South Africa, Syria, the UK, and of course, the US. Of course. Of course. Now, we're living in the times of coronavirus and trying to understand all of that because how the fuck does this happen? Like, why are we in such a panic? It seems like it's just maybe a really bad cold. But when you start to uncover things, um, you start to get a little more scared. So there was this New York Times article from December 19th, 2017. And in it, it describes how federal officials have ended a moratorium imposed three years ago, so that would have been 2014, on funding research that alters germs to make them more lethal. This is called gain-of-function research. So, for example, they were researching how to make Ebola more bad. Can you fucking believe that? I do believe it. And what's more, we all know that they're working on this shit. And in the article, they named the specific uh, germs that they were working with. They were flu viruses, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, as well as SARS. Hmm. <laughs> now there's this guy uh, that actually works for UNC Chapel Hill, right here in North Carolina, USA, named Ralph Barrick. Um, and he was actually working on a type of coronavirus. Um, I think they interviewed him on NPR, National Public Radio, to like see you know, what the symptoms would be or how bad, like how, how much we should be worried about this. And he's the guy that's experimenting with this shit. Like, he was the one years ago that was like, hmm, I wonder how I can make this, um, you know, more more uh, easily spread. Well, there was a moratorium on these types of projects, with the exception of ten. Like I said, five were flu-related, five were MERS-related. 
Um, MERS, again, is a type of coronavirus uh, that was transmitted by camels. And I guess back in 2012, it had infected 2,100 people and killed about a third of those who are infected. So, yeah, make it worse because that's what it seems like, you know, we need. And, you know, sometimes we talk about that, like what does the end of this civilization look like? And so when we started hearing about coronavirus in the United States, we were like, hmm, (laughs) strike them when they're down. Yeah, some of the suspicious circumstances. And again, like, I'm not trying to say I know what the hell coronavirus is. Um, But, you know, I started looking into it, and I found out that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, located in Wuhan, China... Which was like the beginning. Yeah, which was ground zero for the coronavirus, is one of only two bioweapon engineering facilities in China and the only level four microbiology lab equipped to handle viruses like the coronavirus in China. I've come across theories ranging from um, some say that there is actually no such thing as a transmissible virus that, um, you know, which I got to say personally I don't buy, but again, I don't know. Um, But they say it's 5G, that the 5G towers are having these effects on us, and, you know, that's the thing the government is desperately trying to cover up. I've also heard a lot of bad things about 5G, so even if that's not true, I'm still like, hell, I'm skeptical of technology altogether. Um, and ranging from that to um, just the fact that we're fucking with nature and these new like viruses are getting released from the animals because we're, we're pushing further and further into places we don't belong. To me, this is all beside the point. The point is that we know the government has done stuff like this before. Our government, our civilization, we know, like Teresa just gave you these facts. These are This is declassified information. It's not conspiracy theories. We know they have done it. We know they are actively still trying to study how to do this. So for me, the point of, you know, wondering about the coronavirus and everything, whether you believe it's just a regular virus, whether you believe it's a government-engineered thing, whether you believe China engineered it and it got out of hand, whether you believe the CIA released it in China, it's all beside the point. We live in a global civilization that does this shit. This is sick. This is psychotically violent. And this is the kind of the, the, the thing that we need to start really figuring out how to stop. Again, maybe you're one of these people that's like, eh, civilization's collapsing. I'll just wait. And maybe you're getting really lucky right now. Maybe it's collapsing right now. And believe me, my fingers are crossed. Um, You know, I was thinking the other day, what if this is it? What if this is the beginning of the cascade? What if one thing happens right after the other and civilization never recovers? Holy shit. (laughs) I can't believe I lived long enough to see this. I've been waiting for this my whole fucking life. You know, because I'm not what would I say, wallowing in death. I'm wallowing in life. You know, this civilization is killing all of us. So if this is what it looks like to see civilization crumble, holy shit, I can't wait to see some things breathe a sigh of relief and Mm -hmm. things start growing and start recovering and get healthy again. And the fact that we even have to ask these questions about something like coronavirus, 
That is the point for me. That's how fucked up our culture is. That we know we're not talking about just pure science fiction. That whether you believe it or not, you know that it has happened, this kind of thing. You know that they're still trying to figure out ways to make it happen. Exactly. Everybody knows this. We all know this. What kind of civilization is that? (laughs) The civilization that we have been indoctrinated into. We have been colonized. And our tribes, our songs... Our very roots, our place in this world, have been virtually exterminated. We're right now on this piece of land that, you know, we don't own it, but it's it's become like part of me. I can't speak for Gumby, but walking down to the creek and seeing all these familiar trees and like enjoying the water, not just walking past it on a hike. This is quickly becoming a place that I very much consider home. And talking about, like, when do you put your stake in the ground? Like, when do you start to fight and you say no more? I I looked up on our city website before it was taken down by a cyber virus. Um, what exactly, like, who exactly owns this land? And, like, is it in danger of being sold off to some, you know, high capacity housing development or apartment complex or something like that. Hopefully it won't happen. Um, but where, like, when do I start to fucking fight for this? Because this is my land, not in a property way, but this is my home. Yeah, we were trying to list, make a list of, uh, examples of violence first, you know, generally, what our civilization does to its enemies, how far it's willing to go to commit violence on those that resist it. And then the violence that it does on its own citizens to keep them under control. And this is the last thing on our list. And to me, it's the most damning. It's the worst. The fact that we're all colonized. Um, again, you know, I say a lot of shit against the, the liberals and the leftists. Our whole culture Daniel Quinn called this the great forgetting. Our whole culture is really invested in us forgetting where we come from, in the older story that we're a part of, the bigger picture. And the leftists really head up certain parts of this, you know, head up the great forgetting as far as the fact that we, even as white people, got colonized. All of us, black, yellow, red, and white. You trace your roots back, and there was... Once upon a time, a people that lived on their land sustainably, that were happy, that had a community that took care of each other and loved each other, um, that had traditional songs that they would come together and sing to give thanks for all the things nature provided, nature that they revered, that they took care of. They had beliefs that anchored them to the land, that ran deep in their veins and their bones. And somewhere along the way, All of our ancestors encountered this civilization, and we fought. We fucking got up, and we fought. We died. Our our families fought. Women, children, men, everybody got up, and they fought this fucking civilization. And the civilization overpowered them with numbers, with totalitarian agriculture that started booming this population, this booming population we still see spreading, and they overwhelmed us. And we lost something. 
I feel like we all carry a piece of this grief. You know, earlier I talked about why the shooters are shooting. I feel like that grief is like an ember, a dark coal we carry inside of our soul. It's a place where we used to have a living, thriving spirit. Now we just have this black lump of coal. Hmm. And we deal with it in different ways. Some of us ignore it. Some of us numb ourselves. Some of us just say stay really distracted. And some of us can't take it anymore. And we lose our shit. And we turn on the culture. And we don't know where to fire our guns. You know, point your guns at the Capitol. Some of us don't know where to, to, to point those guns, but we know we need to fight something and we go fucking crazy. Um, but the deepest violence I think that our government, our civilization has done to all of us is we have been colonized. And this is something instead of that liberal mindset of Black Lives Matter, of, you know, condemn the white man, fuck that. We all need to come together because the same fucking thing happened to all of us. The whites, you got the Picts, you got the Celts, you got the Franks, you got all those tribes from Europe that once lived much like the indigenous tribes right here in North America. The indigenous tribes in Africa did before our civilization came and fucking violently conquered us. God damn it, we need to come together and we need to fight back. We have a common enemy, just like that quote from Katniss Everdeen. That's why I love it. We have a common enemy, and we know where they are. We don't have to be them anymore. We can fight them. And with that, um, our last section that I wanted to talk about was some considerations if we fight back. Um, Just some things to think about, like if... You know, if we take that conversation, okay, we've got a a civilization here that has proved itself horribly violent, and if we don't stop them, these mad motherfuckers are going to kill us all. We've tried to do it nonviolently. It didn't work. So now let's consider that we need to fight them. What do we need to take into account before we begin that fight? Yeah, like what kind of what my mom was alluding to when I asked her, you know, years and years ago, like, well, what if... Like, what if we all become violent? Like, what if we start to live in a very violent place that we can't handle? And what if, what if we become like them? Like, we're fighting for this idea, this belief that we have. How do we know that by fighting we don't become like our enemy? And I recall that Baba, that the Mm -hmm. woman was talking about in the podcast, saying, like, if we don't fight, we become enslaved. We are a slave to this civilization as long as we don't fight it. I think that's what we mean when we say we are civilized, when we don't think of ourselves as the indigenous culture that we once were a part of, and we think we are civilization itself. What we're describing is slavery. We're enslaved. We're not civilized. We're enslaved Yeah. by we, the civilization. We've surrendered our identity and become a part of a machine, and that's all we think we are anymore, and that's what they keep telling us. Um, and God, that's such a, an important consideration. Like I've heard it also said, like, you can't fight the Wetico, this, this evil spirit that is our civilization without the danger of becoming the Wetico. It's a very dangerous thing to fight back with violence because the same thing to want to do is not to fight with such a a level of vicious violence. Violence has its place, but I agree. You got to be careful with it. I think one important part of that is think is you got you got to keep in mind what you're fighting for. You are fighting for life. If you forget that, then you might become them. You got to fight for life. 
you got to fight for something better than what they're fighting for. They're fighting for profit. They're fighting for power, and they're fighting for control. These are shitty things to fight for. But violence works. So even though they're fighting for shitty causes, they win battles. That's what they put all their energy into, not taking care of people, not being happy, not um, revering the planet. They fight for power. And when you put all your energy into something, pretty good chance you're going to reach that goal. And that's why we say that violence works. Unfortunately, it's working for the wrong people. Yeah. Um, another thing to consider is if you're going to fight, do you fight as a group or as an individual? I think there's a lot of pros and cons both ways. Like as a group, you know, I talked about that uh, podcast, um, The Green Flame. They talk a lot about organizing and there's a lot to be said about a group. You get a group of people and there's more power in a group, a tribe, then there is in an individual that you can accomplish more. You've got more sets of eyes. You've got more abilities pulled between you. Um, But the cons of that is there's a bigger opportunity for infiltration. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing that I think of is the Earth Liberation Front. Yeah. Um, If you've been an anarchist for long and kind of like done some research about some of the things that have happened. This is a very familiar story. Um, Many people are familiar with what happened to the Earth Liberation Front. But basically, they burned a whole bunch of shit down. And they just got to a point where they uh, moved on. You know, they kind of tried to go back to their old lives, so to speak. You know, they got jobs and everything. And they had a really like well-organized group, a very small group. I think it was like four people, something like that. One of the guys had a drug addiction. I think maybe it was heroin. And once the FBI got enough leads to like figure out this guy might be involved, they still had nothing on them. They were scot-free at this point. And this was years after the events happened. Years after, yeah. They started following this guy, and they used his... um drug addiction, his paranoia about getting busted for drugs against him, and they pressured him to spill the beans on the rest of the group. And so this is the the, the downside of being part of a group. You have to be able to trust everybody in that group. And when you're already part of a civilization where, as I said, we're all stark, raving, fucking mad, we're already compromised, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, and our government has thought, has honed so many tactics to get people to do what they want. So there's a lot of danger in working with a group. Now, when I think of working as an individual, if you're going to fight, first guy I think of is Ted Kaczynski. Woo! Yeah. If you believe what you're doing, you know, and you can trust yourself, you don't have to worry about getting infiltrated. But, of course, the con is you're not as strong. You're one person, but... Man, if you're a fucking, like, mathematical genius, you know, a one person can make a huge splash. So that's something I would think of as pros and cons of a group. I think it is crucial to be part of a community, like, in the long run. Like, what we're fighting for is a tribe. Somewhere down the road, you got to be part of a tribe. And let's say this coronavirus doesn't get under control. It keeps spreading. And let's say this is the end of civilization. Those of us who aren't part of a tribe, we've got a huge disadvantage. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, (laughs) I mean, there's just so many challenges, like getting food, protecting yourself, going up against other tribes who, uh, you know, might not have good intentions. It's it's a really big disadvantage to not be part of a tribe. So I believe in the long run, 
you need to be part of a tribe and we need to relearn the skill that every human being used to know. And I think we still know it's latent in us, but it's going to take some work to get it back, to fan those flames, to like get in a more natural environment where we can explore that again in a real way. Um, But yeah, if you're just, the civilization is intact and you want to fight, I think there's a lot to be said for doing it as an individual too. And we were just reading that book. What was it? Where he was <clears throat> monkey wrenching. Oh yeah. Eco defense. Eco defense. And uh, they were saying like, if you're monkey wrenching, you know, like going out there and kind of sabotaging uh, corporate machinery and everything, they recommend doing it as an individual. Yeah. And yeah. And a lot of the books, we'll talk about them um, at the end of the podcast. We'll just mention them, but they talked about like, vetting like who are you going to let in if you have a group they better be people that you fucking trust with your life because they could ruin your life you are trusting them with your life so it's not just about oh i believe that too because that person might try to not only like fuck you up but derail the whole entire cause which is what we were talking about earlier with the leftists now gumby i have a question how do you feel about like the element of surprise or well, as I would say, supplies. <laughs> supplies. <laughs> um. Well, I was just, I was still thinking about what you were saying about the group and everything. Oh. And uh, one one last thought, and I'll answer your question on the the other thing. But yeah, I, like for me, I think about trust, and I don't trust anybody enough to like bring them in on something like that. I I trust different people for different things, but you know the people closest to me. I see their weaknesses, you know, I can trust their intentions, but, you know, there's this person over here that they just love telling stories so much. Maybe they like drinking. Can I really trust them, like, with my life, that they're not just going to tell one person they think they can trust for the rest of their life that's not going to happen? Or am I going to trust this other person that they're going to, like, in a high tense situation, that they're going to be able to communicate with me so well that just some streak of fucking stubbornness won't cross their mind and the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, really think about trust. It's not just the people you like or the people you think are family. Like, when you're talking about fighting the government, you really got to explore what trust means. <clears throat> and to move on to what you were saying, like, the element of surprise, that is a huge thing in your favor. If You know, when I hear people talk about, like, oh, I don't, I'm not worried about shit because I got a gun— You know who's probably going to win the fight? Like if a fight breaks out in a small way, it's the person who ever gets the jump. The element of surprise is fucking huge. So, you know, if the shit ever hits the fan, whenever somebody tells me, like, I got a lot of guns, I kind of make a little, uh... (laughs) (laughs) I know the people around me who have guns. I keep up with that. I remember that. Because one thing I know is... Yeah, if we're in an open fight and you've got a gun and I don't, I'm probably going to get shot and killed. But I've got the element of surprise. And all I have to do is exploit that. And if I'm careful enough, I can get one of those guns. So, (laughs) you know, it's just a good thing to remember because if there's some asshole out there trying to hoard and they got a lot of guns, I'm not saying I want to go and like, you know, fuck them over and be like Negan in The Walking Dead and just like go and, you know... Uh, kill people, I'm saying I might need to get what I need to get. Mm -hmm. And if you're a damn fool already that's bragging about all the guns you get, which if you have guns, 
you should fucking keep that secret. <laughs> if you are like, that's one of the things I've learned through studying prepping. You know, they always say if you're like hoard up food, like get food, you know, get all the, your supplies. Don't fucking tell anybody. Don't even let your neighbors see you bringing it in. Yeah, be secretive of how it's even coming in. Don't even like arouse their suspicion with boxes coming into your house. Um, so anybody that's like bragging about their guns is a damn fool to begin with. And if somebody's going to get those guns, I keep that. Well, anyway, I'm getting, <laughs> getting distracted with guns. But the element of surprise. So <clears throat> if you need something, if you need to win a fight, the element of surprise, you attacking in a way that people don't see you coming is a huge thing to keep in your favor. Keep that in your favor. Um, don't talk about something you're going to do before you do it. Fucking keep it as secret as you possibly can. If there's anybody involved, keep that between you as secret as possible. Because you want to make sure that wherever you're about to strike, that person doesn't see it coming. And that is going to really help you win that fight. If I walk up to somebody, I can walk up to somebody that's like black belt, fucking built like hell. And here I am with my old beer belly and shit. (laughs) All I need is the element of surprise. I grab a pipe, wait for them not to be looking. Bam. I just, I won the fight. Element of surprise. And you can make that opportunity. Um, For instance, if you don't get killed right away, um, you know, you can kind of like pretend like you're a lot more hurt than you are. Pretend like you're mentally ill. Drool on yourself. Pretend like you're sick. Uh, Make yourself puke. Piss your pants. Shit yourself. Anything you got. Because let's keep in mind what we're talking about. Shit washes off. Embarrassment? Who gives a fuck what your enemies think about you? You need to win. You need to do anything it takes to win. And if you can distract the enemy, make them think you're sick, you're debilitated, and wait for your moment, bam, you've just made an opportunity for the element of surprise. So that's something I would consider if I'm fighting back, is how to use the element of surprise in my favor. Because even a well-guarded place, everybody gets complacent. A well-guarded place, after months and months of no action, they're going to get kind of lax. More lax than they were than if they got attacked the night before and you try it the very next night. Unless you can use that as your element of surprise because they don't expect it. <laughs> and, of course, this is all theoretical. I've never done anything like this, for the record. Mm-mm. Teresa? What about... Uh... Oh, this is mine. And in lieu of that timing, you know, if you're going to make an attack, like, when? Really pick your moment. Like... You know, there are times when we all have weak moments, distracted moments, we're busy, things aren't strong, like, I don't know, maybe like if there's like a virus, you know, like spreading across the globe and, you know, the status quo is really upset, you know, that might be an interesting time to consider an attack. Um, You know, actually, Teresa mentioned it, but I want to bring it up again, this Russian malware virus that attacked Durham. The Ransomware. Ransomware. Ryuk, R-Y-U-K. And Durham is the city we're in. Um, we're on the outskirts now. But this virus came right as coronavirus is beginning to hit um, North Carolina. Somebody fucking chose their moment with that mm-hmm. shit. And that virus, like, really shut down the government for a while. The libraries were still trying to recover. We were out in the country. We didn't know anything about it. came out, and it's like, what the fuck? There's no Wi-Fi at the library. All the computers are down. Like... And then we found out it was, like, affecting everything. Yeah. Somebody chose their moment. Somebody understood timing. And, you know, <laughs> that is an important thing to consider. That's something I would consider is, like, is my enemy, is my opponent strong right now? Or are they distracted? Are they overwhelmed? 
Um, is this a time when I could actually use whatever small action that is in my power to the most advantage? The biggest splash with the least amount of risk. That's what I'm after. Timing. Mm -hmm. And these are interesting times we live in right now. Yeah, and with that being said, like the element of surprise, timing of your attack or your move, um, it reminds me of a quote from Jensen where he talks about, you know, in the future, if there are any survivors, they'll probably wonder why the fuck we didn't do anything to stop all of this. So I'm going to hand it over to Gumby. Yeah, I actually couldn't write down the verbatim quote because, uh, like I said, we're kind of Wi-Fi... Uh, debilitated at the moment. Actually, the way we got on Wi-Fi to do any of this research for this podcast is we got to go to Food Line, the local grocery store nearest us, and just kind of park outside and like get on their Wi-Fi. And uh, that's the best we can do right now. But yeah, he's got some kind of quote that I love where he's saying, if there are any people in the future, they're going to wonder why the fuck we didn't do anything. And I mean anything to stop this. And uh, I love that. You know, I'm already wondering why people before me didn't. And I wonder why we don't. We'll talk a little bit about that more. But uh, he has written a book called Deep Green Resistance. and He was a co-author of it. A co-author. And I have not read this book yet, but um, he explores this. You know, if we're going to fight, what are some good tactics? I've encountered a couple of the things he mentioned in the book, and I'll just share those with you. One was he was talking about, like, uh, you know, just keep the people that need to know things um, – don't spread it further than that. Let's say you got a group and you got eight people and you trust them to do certain actions, but then there's an action that is a little more extreme. You don't trust everybody in that group to be on board with it, but you can get by with like three people. Don't let the rest of the people in the group know it. They don't need to know it. You're putting them in danger. And you're putting your whole group, the mission, in danger. They don't need to know it. So that was a big thing I know he talks about is only let people know who need to know whatever you're doing. Um, there's no room for, for bragging. Whatever you do, if you're successful, people will probably never know your name. And that's fine because a name is just a fucking name. I mean, so what if they know your name? They won't know you. <coughs> and one, another thing he points out is that we are a culture dependent on gasoline and so that's a weakness. And he points out, what if we could organize something to disrupt the flow of gas into our culture? That would be very debilitating. Um, in that vein, I'm thinking about kind of what's happening right now with the uh, coronavirus. We're getting overwhelmed with medical facilities. We're so reliant on the government to take care of us. And this is disrupting all kinds of chains that, are, that feed our culture right now. This is a big time of disruption that's already happening. And chances are, this wasn't an anarchist that made the virus and set it loose. This was the government itself or <laughs> nature itself. Either way, something has given us a hell of an opportunity. Um, I mean, you know, other people a hell of an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Not that I support any of this. No. So don't promote violence. Mm -mm. No, no. the government or else. else. Mm -mm. Yeah. If I ever use violence, it would probably be to... Um, like if the U.S. Army was losing to like mm -hmm. save them so we could like keep going, you know, that's... I want to defend the constitutional rights. Exactly. That the Constitution stands for. Exactly. <coughs> <coughs> Bullshit. <coughs> All right. So 
another episode, like we mentioned the Green Flame, my favorite episode I've listened to so far was episode four, Civilization and Empire. Um, towards the end of it, they interview this lawyer named Will Falk, and he works with Deep Green Resistance. He shared some really interesting information. He talked about how in 1962, Silent Spring was written and published by Rachel Carson. And he says since around that time, like 1970 on, all the major environmental laws that people have wanted to be passed have, in fact, been passed. Mm. You know, a lot of people think like, oh, if we just pass the right law, the right regulation. The fact is, all the shit is actually getting on the books. It's getting passed. And in that time, 60% of all wildlife on the planet has been lost. Think of that as an individual. That means that if you've got like a full-grown man, he he's lost 60% of his biomass. That's over 50%, 60%. That's a lot. And, you know, apply that to the whole planet. So even with all this regulation and laws in place, these environmental laws, that's been happening. We've been losing. Now, he says one of the problems that we have in trying to do this, like his whole argument is that we're not going to be able to do this through legal means. And he's describing why. One of the things is we define nature as property. Now, as soon as you define nature as property, no matter what the regulation or whatever is, whether you're trying to protect it or whatever, by defining it as property, whoever owns this property has the right to consume and destroy it. It is a thing. So that's one of the things that we can't get away from. You're not going to pass a law that defines nature that's not property, even if it's government property, federal property. It's property. He uses the word resourcism. Um and he says, when you have this, you know, you think of nature as resources, property, objects. It's only a matter of time. Destruction is only a matter of time. And he says there's no time to convince everyone to change. The amount of change that it would take to change the way we have laws and regulations is too much. We don't have time. Um, you know, back to that 60% of the life on the planet has already been lost. Now, another thing that happened, and Teresa and I actually ran into this information studying the presidents, is when the slaves were freed, (laughs) you don't hear about this. You hear about emancipation. Ooh, celebrate emancipation proclamation. When the slaves were freed, they tucked in a little part of that that also said this is the time when corporations could be treated as individuals. So they were like, okay, if you're going to take these people that were just property and say they're free and they have rights as American citizens, then we demand that corporations have the same right. That was when corporations began to have the rights as individuals. That has a lot of fucked up implications. Um, There's this regulatory fallacy. And, you know, the fallacy is that if you have regulations – that that keeps the corporations from destroying the environment. But the thing is, the corporations have the same rights as any citizen. And so what it actually sets it up for is it establishes a way for corporations to get permits. Mm. Permits is a word that means permission. (laughs) Permits to destroy the environment. All they have to do is go through the right channels. These corporations have the money. And by the way, who do you think fucking funds, you know, all these... These places, who do you think has the lawyers in their pockets? The power. Exactly. Um, law, the law gains power through violence. They don't just make a law and then we all follow it. 
They threaten you with violence. That's why the law means something. People with guns make it happen. That's what a law is. So William Falk says, to protect the natural world, we're going to have to use the same kind of force. It works. So whatever we want to happen, the values that are going to save the world and protect it, we need to be willing to enforce it and back it up. Because a law means nothing unless people with guns show up to make it mean something. If we want a different set of values to mean something, we've got to back it up with the same kind of force. And he talks about Standing Rock as an example. He said they went through all the legal channels. They did everything they were supposed to, and it failed, it failed, it failed. They've been doing this a long time, so they knew all the channels to go through. But yeah. it keeps failing! It's the same fucking story. And he says, but you know what I think might have made a difference? What if a large armed militia had intervened? He said, it's time to defend your community with arms. Use force to defend. You don't need to ask a judge for this right. And he asked the question, do you need to ask a judge for the right to defend your land base, your community, your family? What the fuck do you need to ask some judge for? Who the hell is he? You know you have not a right so much as a responsibility. That's another thing that that separates our culture from indigenous cultures. We're so entitled. We have the right to do this. You're infringing on my rights. That philosophy holds no water in most indigenous cultures. They are more vested in the responsibility. We take from this land. We have the responsibility to take care of it. Uh, My tribe takes care of me. I have a responsibility to defend my tribe against enemies. Um, And he really encourages us to train, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Learn how to use these guns. Learn how to use force to protect what you need to protect. If you don't fight for what you love, what does anything else matter? It's going away, and we know it's under attack. So we've talked a lot about um, like reasons to fight and considerations if we do fight, but what are some methods that you could think of to fight back? Well, one non-lethal uh, type of violence, and I hesitate to even call this a violence because it's against machines and things like that, is sabotage. You know, there's uh, Ed Abbey's Monkey Wrench Gang, and apparently monkey wrenching was a thing before he wrote the book. We just found out that's a myth that he invented it. Um, And there's a lot of examples of this. You know, know, we're actually trying to learn more about it right now. But like in China. interest. Yeah. (laughs) Well, of course, Teresa, that goes without saying. (laughs) So there were the protesters in China, and one of the things they were doing was setting up bricks, you know, like lengthwise, you know, kind of the tall way to set up bricks, not like flat on the ground. And they're spreading them around as a deterrent for cars to keep cars out of the, the area they wanted to be in to slow down the cops. There's things like sugar and gas tanks, you know, um, arson, any way you can find to burn things down. The Earth Liberation Front was, uh, they came up with these like bombs, these canisters, and they started making pamphlets of how to do it. And they would disperse that. They spread that around like, you want to burn something down? Here's how you do it. And it had a little <laughs> timer on it and boom, it would just fucking burn. Um, there's tree spiking. You know, you take a long nail and a hammer and they recommend just like keeping it in your backpack. Go to a place, especially if it's under threat of logging and you hammer that nail I would imagine probably works best if you go at a severe angle. You know, I've never done anything like this, so I'm completely theorizing. 
you hammer it down, especially at the base of a tree where a chainsaw might be. Now, the thing is, it occurs to me like it's probably best if you leave the head of the nail out so the deterrent will be there. You know, that hopefully somebody won't take a chainsaw and get hurt. But if they do get hurt, I don't know. A question I've had for a long time is, as a sane person, I don't want to see anything get hurt that doesn't need to unless it, like, needs to die for food. You know, for to there's a, a, a needful reason for something to be hurt or die. Our culture is fucking insane. It doesn't see things like this. It doesn't act like that. But it's quick to try to take these values, this high road, if you start talking about ways to slow down the culture. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly they're these peaceful people and you're this fucking terrorist. So I would rather somebody that has a chainsaw was deterred and did not cut down the tree. But if it happens once, you know, they're going to be a lot more hesitant to cut down this forest. And at what point do we say... There are no innocent people. They're irresponsible for your actions. If the forests are being cut down at the rate we know they're being cut down and they're threatened in the way we know they're being threatened, and there's people actively, you are the guy holding the thing. You're the the person operating the machine. How long do they get to be an innocent person? If I'm a Nazi and I'm part of a, a military and it gets taken over by a dictator and they start telling me to, to round up these people, these certain people that are an enemy of the state and that we're going to help our nation. Am I innocent just because I'm following orders? I mean, I was holding the gun and I pushed the button at the gas chamber, but I mean, I'm just trying to make a living. I'm trying to make sure my family's okay. You know, if other people have to die, I mean, at least it's not my family. Isn't that what a good citizen does? So where are the fucking innocent people? Um, it's like the shooters. The question, where do you turn your guns? You know, who are the enemies? So I would say everybody right now, if you're hearing this and tell your friends, um, if you got a job that's hurting the environment, you fucking do something else. Fucking do it now. Because there's no justification for that. You're feeding your family? Fuck you. Go find another way to feed your family. Or you know what? Maybe you're trying to get your family too much shit. <laughs> Maybe you need to simplify so you and your family doesn't need so much so you don't have to do abhorrent acts that destroy the earth to fucking feed your family. Um, so, yeah. Any other things about sabotage? Like we were reading through a lot of things. Oh, there was like the road spiking. Well, yeah. there We were reading a little bit in this book, Eco Defense. Um, I'll give more information on that at the end of the podcast. But in the, the beginning... It says that, I guess back in 1977, the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, they had to do this survey of all the land, the public land, the land that is yours and mine, that's supposed to be protected. They had to do this survey on it. And according to this book, um, the Forest Service was like, we never want to have to do this bullshit work again so they got the idea that you know maybe instead of going to these remote places and having to do a survey on the different like natural resources that are there maybe we can just like offload this land whether it's to the logging industry or the mining industry or the housing industry real estate but we don't want to have to deal with this land anymore so they started to try to like instigate these laws to be passed and these bills to be passed so in the book 
it was talking about how sometimes it is economically it's it's not economically viable for these industries to come all the way into the middle of nowhere to log or to build roads so that there could be housing. So if you make it a little bit harder for them by road spiking or tree spiking or some other form of monkey wrenching, then maybe they'll just be deterred enough to leave it the fuck alone. So that's really where monkey wrenching comes in as far as defending the environment. Yeah, and at least you're giving it a fighting chance. And also guns. <laughs> I don't have much else to say about guns. Um, remember that guy that was doing the plans for like a um, 3D plastic printer thing where you could like mm-hmm. print your own rifle? Yeah, I love that. Some of those started showing up at the, the international airport that's the nearest to us, the Raleigh-Durham mm. airport. I'm not sure of the whole story, but yeah, evidently somebody was taking those plans and putting them to use. Yeah, and of course, assault rifles have the, uh, you know, that's the thing all the gun rights people are after um, and get used in shootings. But actually, according to uh, some FBI documents, the thing, the gun most used in shootings against other people is handguns. So that's not something you hear actually the gun laws even really addressing, you know. So even if they did get passed, it might not address the problem. But yeah, we already talked at length about guns, but, you know, as one of the methods to fight. Um, self-defense. And by that, I mean, like, you know, you got your hands. For one thing, we're taught in movies to use your fist. You know, like, that is a stupid way to fight. It's a way to get your knuckle broken. Um, don't buy what you see in the movies, that old cowboy fighting. Um, the way you use your hands is it's better to use the palm of your hand, like, open-handed, and then just shove it into somebody's face Or if you're going to use your fist, to pummel them with the knife edge of your hand. Um, You know, almost like a gorilla, you know, just coming down, bam, like a hammer. Don't just shove your knuckles into somebody's face. That is a really bad way to fight. Um, Their teeth, their jaws are going to really fuck you up. And if you're in a hand-to-hand fight, um, I think one of the things that you got to wrap your mind around right away is, I've heard it called Wolverine medicine. You need to decide you're going to win this fight. You are going to win this fight. You know you're going to win this fight. You've already won this fight, and now you just need to show this other motherfucker that you're going to win this fight. You need to go in with that kind of determination, and you need to make it happen. You know the soft places. You know where a guy's balls are. You know where everybody's eye sockets are. Um, You know places that are going to fucking take people down. And again, it sounds savage, but this is the stuff that like the CIA, the army is already using. They already know this shit, this hand-to-hand combat, but they're using it on people um, just to further the power of our civilization. I'm talking about just the average person that might run into a situation where they need to fight like that. So, you know, just go for the soft spots. Take somebody's eye out. Fucking grab their nuts. Bite them. If, you, if they've got your hands, like, you're going to win this fight no matter what. Take a chunk of, their, of them off. <laughs> you know? Like, I think that's the mindset you got to get into. And, of course, this is, doesn't mean you just go out and, you know, somebody, like, offended you at a bar and you're going to, like, maim them for life. I'm not talking about some asinine shit like that. I'm talking about fighting people who are trying to fight you when you're trying to save 
the environment. You're trying to save the future for your children. You're fighting for your people. You're fighting for your planet. Um, Because if it comes down to that, like you really, I think it's a mind game. You got to wrap your mind around what you're doing. And your legs are strong. I've heard if somebody tried to abduct you, for one thing, just going dead, you know, just totally limp. Just the weight of your body is a hard thing for somebody to handle. And if you're on your back, kicking, like really kicking, your legs are strong. So keep that in mind. Your legs, um, if you can get in some kind of position to use them, that can be to your advantage. And with that said, I don't know a whole lot. I've, I've been in like two fights in my whole life. Um, and I didn't use any of this shit because it was like a fight where I didn't want to maim the other person. We were just like being assholes and, <laughs> you know. So I'm not suggesting you use this just because you get in a fight with somebody. Like it's a real coward that would try to hurt somebody in such a serious way because you're offended. I'm talking about fighting for your life. And Molotov cocktails. Oh, I love the Molotov cocktail. It's almost like a symbol for the anarchist is the <laughs> Molotov cocktail. Also known as a petrol bomb hmm. or a gasoline bomb in the United States because we, we say gasoline. The poor man's grenade <laughs> or a molly, short for Molotov. And it's basically a breakable glass bottle that con- contains a flammable substance um, such as petrol, gasoline, um, plus some sort of oil that helps to like spread the fire um, and to make it stick to the target, as well as a rag or cloth or some sort of wick that's stuffed inside the mouth of the bottle that's then lit. Um, and it's the wick is often soaked in alcohol or kerosene. And they were first used in the Spanish Civil War in the 19, um, late 1930s, 1936 through 39. Hmm? Yeah, so the name Molotov cocktail, it was coined by the Finns during the Winter War as a pejorative reference to Soviet foreign minister Vyacheslav Molotov. And he was one of the architects of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which was signed in 1939. And uh, you had some more information on that, Teresa? Well, I wrote down because I I don't know a lot about this point in history and this area of the world. But evidently, there was some fucked up shit going on. And the Soviets were sending over cluster bombs to Finland. And instead of owning up to the fact that they were bombs, they were trying to say, No, no, that's our humanitarian aid that we're sending and dropping from the sky. So the... Finns were saying, all right, well, how about for your food, we'll add a drink. And that was the Molotov cocktail. <laughs> oh, they called the uh, the cluster bombs the bread basket, since it was supposed to be food, humanitarian aid. As well as other bombs. Bombs, there's other types of bombs. There's some bombs that blow up, bombs you throw at people. Car bombs, suicide bombers. Nail bombs, letter bombs. Yeah. And uh, we're going to mention some resources if you want to learn more about this stuff at the end. So I can't say there's really a whole lot of uh, productive things we can say about bombs at the moment. Um, One of the things I learned at the uh, Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School is a few Apache man traps. Um, Rambo shit? Rambo shit. Yeah! Love Rambo! And there was four of them, I remember. Um... And they're a little hard to describe, but basically the Apache were, you know, really had a interesting grasp of what a battle is. So they understood that if you kill somebody, 
you've taken out taken out one enemy. If you maim somebody, you've taken out two or three enemies because chances are somebody's going to have to stay with that guy mm. and maybe two people will have to help them out. So like there's one called the bone keeper that if you understand the basics of how a snare works, bent sapling and everything, imagine turning that thing sideways. And of course, you don't have a tree rooted in the ground to bend over, but imagine cutting that sapling, that bendy sapling, putting it on the ground and using stakes in the ground, wooden stakes to hold it where you can get the same bend. You can prop it between the stakes and bend it, create that tension, and then set a snare in the middle of a trail camouflage it and then you've got a bone a pointed bone that's a spike that's hidden in the the debris and if somebody triggers it bam the snare goes off shoves your foot right into the bone the bone keeper um there's another one where you dig a hole and you've got two spikes like imagine you're going down a trail you've got a little hole and you got two wooden spikes on each side of the trail both of those spikes you have a string, a cord of some kind tied to them. And it goes across the hole you've dug. The hole is camouflaged. It doesn't look like a hole. The idea is when your foot steps into this hole, um, it goes into the hole, steps on the string. And because of your weight, your weight pushes the string down and brings both spikes into either side of your foot. I've heard you can actually make like a a fun trap, like with fork sticks that like actually catches somebody. Sure. But I've always worried that I was going to break a kid's ankle, so I never tried this at camp. Yeah. Um, there's another one that reminds me of the old Three Stooges gag where you step on a rake and it pops up and hits you in the head, where you dig a little indentation again in a trail, and you've got a stick that has a... Um, it has a spike. Holy shit. <laughs> so you've got like, <sighs> let's say a broom handled type stick with a branch poking off that you've like whittled into a spike. And at the end, you know, the non spike end, which will be facing the person who's walking down the trail, you dig a little hole. So again, when you step on the stick, the weight of that, your weight falls in the hole as you have, you bring the spike up. And if you really know what you're doing, that spike can pierce somebody's chest. So those are just a few examples. Like the Apache has some pretty ruthless shit. But, you know, if it comes to that, I mean, it's really good to know what you're doing, how to defend yourself. And again, if you're put off by this, but you aren't put off by anybody who says, God bless America, Mm -hmm. this is how America got to be where it is, using tactics like this. And they still use shit like this when they can get away, if they can't get away with funding somebody else who's using shit like this. So having some understanding of the violence they use against us, I think is really important. And yeah, if you're an indoor person and want to fight, um, maybe you can engineer some of those real great computer viruses like we had attack the city of Durham. And I think it was also somewhere in Louisiana. If it wasn't New Orleans, it was somewhere in Louisiana, the same virus. Um, but yeah, I really don't know much of anything about computers. And I've got mixed feelings about these computer viruses. On the one hand, my little day-to-day selfish little bubble of like, you know, my electronic devices, they're such a pain in the ass and who wants to get viruses on their, their shit. On the other hand, if there's anarchists out there who are like creating these viruses to disrupt industrial society and computers, I got to kind of applaud that. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way I feel right now about the whole coronavirus thing. You know, I'm, I'm inconvenienced because I can't get the books I want. 
Um, you know, I can't go to the restaurants that I'm used to going to sometimes. But at the same time, if I step outside of that selfish little bubble, which I always knew I'd have to let go sooner or later, God, there's something really, the possibility of something really good happening. The things that I want threatened are being threatened, and that's the civilization. Um, anything that's slowing us down, I applaud that. And again, you know, people are getting sick, like, you know, we're right next to my mom. I'm really hoping, like, she's in that group of sensitive people, you know, if she gets it, it could be a really bad thing. And so is her boyfriend. And, uh, you know, I'm not hoping anybody, like, gets this. I'm not wishing ill on anyone, but I am wishing ill on the civilization that we're all a part of. And we really got to start thinking about what we're doing, because, again, that question of who's the innocent people, if we're all feeding this thing. We really got to figure out what side we're on and act like it. And finally, you know, somebody brought up, like I saw a meme on Facebook (laughs) that was like, okay, so we've been waiting for a moment like this. How come people aren't blowing up stuff? And I think what's happened is we've all decided to be the instigators. There's different roles in a revolt. Some people get out there on the soapbox and like really try to rouse everybody up. We've decided we want to follow in the footsteps of Daniel Quinn and Derek Jensen because it's the safer path. So we vent. We say really like provocative shit. And we do it because we think we can get away with it for quite a while and not have too many repercussions. It's the safer path. And we can feel some degree of like we're fighting. Not many of us want to go on the path of Ted Kaczynski, you know, so... I think what's happening now is uh, we've got all these anarchist-leaning instigators and hardly any warriors, because if we had warriors, they probably would have already been fighting. And that's why we don't see more resistance happening at this time of weakness in our civilization. True that. And speaking of instigators, here's that list of books that I was talking about. It's not a long... Wow. It's a, you're eating spicy jalapeno chips. That's another weapon to be used against. Oh, it really is. Um, so this is a short list. Uh, I will include links on our Facebook page to the free resources, and I'll even maybe throw in this other one. So the first one is the Anarchist Cookbook, the original. I used to own this. Yeah, and uh, it's online. I'll, I'll provide the link on Facebook. Then there's the Anarchy Cookbook 2000, which is still a little out of date, um, but it's kind of cool. It 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 has everything. I mean, there's there's a little bit of uh, chemistry, <laughs> shall I say? There's a little bit of self-defense. There's a little bit of math and science tactics. Yeah. Um, and then there's that book that we mentioned, Eco Defense: A Field Guide to Monkey Wrenching which was co-edited by Dave Foreman and has various authors. And you said that um, one of our listeners mentioned Dave Foreman. I'll get to that in a minute. All right. So, um, And then the final book, Gumby kind of alluded to this, Deep Green Resistance. This book, um, you can pay $5 online for it. I did just to see what it was all about. It's called Deep Green Resistance, Strategy to Save the Planet. And it has three authors. Eric McBay, Lear, Keith, and Derek Jensen. I think Derek Jensen really only wrote the, like, preface or something. Um, Eric McBay seems to be the one behind, like, this 
tactics and strategy. It's a like a 560-page document. Uh, I browsed through it. It seems to have a, a lot of similar information to the eco-defense monkey-wrenching book, so I'd say check that free resource out. And then if you're still interested, um, maybe I'll put a link up there if you want to purchase the other book. But yeah, those um, those were some really interesting books just to give you some ideas and also to like to make you even more mad to instigate to rile you up yeah so now we conclude uh monopoly on violence and we hope we've <clears throat> done our part to continue a conversation i don't want to say start a conversation because people like Derek jensen um in books like endgame which is an awesome book um have already started that conversation so i'd just like to throw our two cents in and hopefully maybe reach some people who other sources have not reached and kind of throw our take in on it. So for our listener write-in, we have Bill from Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And he, in another message, mentioned, uh, what is it, Dave Foreman? Mm-hmm. I believe is one of his heroes. But our old friend Bill, he wrote, writes, Hey, I just wanted to write you a quick note to say that you guys outdid yourselves with the Unibomb podcast. Really great work. Finally, someone who had the balls to come out and explain and justify Kaczynski's actions. I agree with every point that you made, and you helped me understand my own instinctive support for Ted. My hope is that your analysis reaches as many people as possible before it gets censored. <laughs> or worse, your podcast gets canceled. <laughs> Lord knows you are now most likely an official member of the FBI watch list. Keep up the good work. Well, um, if we weren't already on a watch list, then I think maybe this episode will hey. get us on that watch list. But, uh, anchors, yeah. Anchors pulled their... Uh little ad at the end <laughs> yeah. anchor used to have like a little sales pitch it would tack onto our podcast and we've noticed that's missing now so <laughs> i don't know if they don't want to be affiliated with us anymore or not um but yeah i would uh let's see yeah i, I that episode has not been censored yet you know i was kind of wondering if it would myself and um yeah, our podcast is still going strong, so so far so good. And got it. <clears throat> I thought I had something else to say about the the watch list. Oh yeah, I know what it is. I think so many people are kind of like I said, we're all deciding to be instigators, and very few of us are being warriors. So I think that the powers that be, you know, are kind of like overwhelmed with the instigators, and they're kind of shrugging, like, eh, let them say what they want, yeah. as long as shit ain't getting blown up. So. I think if you decide to be an instigator, and this is another lesson I learned from Earth Liberation Front, they tried to carry on a normal life. I think if you set on this path, if you go to war with the civilization, there's no going back to a normal life. I think you have pretty much uh, began a path that you need to follow unless you die or unless you win the war. Mm. Because... You know, I've thought a lot, Teresa and I have talked about, well, what if we say this stuff, you know, and what if we decide to fight in some physical way down the road? Like, they're going to know it's us, you know, it's so easily traceable. And uh, I think if you're going to be an instigator, if you're going to, like, just blow your mouth off like we do and have all your opinions out there in the public, um, for one thing, (laughs) it affects friends and family and your hiring, your hireability. I may not be hireable anymore. I don't know. 
Um, fuck it. Fuck it, because that's the path I'm walking. I want to. I've been wanting to learn how not to need to cow down and ask people to give me money. I don't want to prostitute myself anymore, which is what all these skills are about. And also, if I ever decide to go strong, more strongly down this path and start doing things, I figure it doesn't matter whether they know who I am or not, because that means that I have engaged in a war that I don't get to back out of. That's the rest of my life. And I really don't think that... Uh, I mean, is that such a bad path? You know, what's the other path? Being distracted? Mm-hmm. You know, just like numbing yourself until you die of slow death of some kind of bullshit disease that civilization gave you. Um, but anyway, some last thoughts on that. If you have any questions or comments, uh, visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in bombs, bullets, bayonets, and blatant belligerent behavior to boycott the bureaucratic bitches. Dot com. And we also have a Facebook page found at Escaping Society. So we hope you're getting outside and uh, trying to stay safe with all this uh, crap going on. And like I said, the earliest you'll hear this is like nine days from now. So who knows what's going to happen in the next nine days? <laughs> Maybe so, uh, uh, society will have escaped us. So Yahoo! keep your fingers crossed. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.